You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, where occasionally we interrupt our regular weekly schedule of contemporary on-air conversations to present, in memoriam, a past program with a distinguished guest who has passed. Today we celebrate the much-honored broadcast journalist, Mike Wallace, who died in April 2012 at age 93, always to be remembered as the legendary, brazen, and tough-minded CBS News interviewer most closely associated with the extraordinarily successful 60 Minutes. My own 30 Minutes with Mike Wallace, shown now in its entirety, was broadcast first in 1984. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, and my guest today is Mike Wallace, who really needs no introduction beyond the fact that with Gary Paul Gates, He's just authored Close Encounters, a truly terrific William Morrow book. Now, terrific isn't exactly the most artful or gracious comment that one can make about this riveting account of one particularly intriguing broadcaster's odyssey through the rise and then the continuing rise of electronic journalism since the 1950s. But for me, the experience of reading Close Encounters was just that, terrific, for I lived through it all. In fact, The Open Mind first went on the air just five months before Mike Wallace began his famous, or infamous, if you're so inclined, Nightbeat series late in 1958. So this is geriatric time. But I'm going to ask Mike's indulgence not to spend too much time now on just how tough an interviewer he is on the air, whose toes he has mangled, etc., and not just because, by contrast, I'm such a pussycat. I won't ask him either about the nonsense of identifying 60 Minutes as entertainment, not journalism, just because it is television's top-rated series. And since the Westmoreland case is in the courts, we'll leave it there. But I do want to ask Mike Wallace about media power, about faction, that damned elusive mingling of fact and fiction, and about a revealing 60 Minutes interview with European journalist Ariana Falacci. Let me quote Close Encounters. Here, some of the points Wallace made, because this is a book that enables Mike and his colleague to comment on him and his uh, programming. Some of the points Wallace made about Falacci were clearly evocative of his own career and interviewing style. He noted that when she began plying her craft, it was mainly actors and entertainers, but today she prefers heads of state. He then named a few, all of whom, coincidentally, had also been interviewed by Mike Wallace. And in what easily could have served as a self-appraisal, he contended that Falacci turns her interviews into morality dramas. She plays the role of judge. The interviewee is on trial. And few are found innocent. And here's the exchange. Wallace, power? Do you have power? Falacci, oh no, I have not power. How can you say? None whatsoever? We are not one of those who think that we journalists have power. No? Nah, we are like dogs, bow wow wow, and nobody listens to us. You're an entertainer? I'm an historian. You're not an historian. Yes, I am. You're a journalist. No, sir, a journalist is an historian. And Mike Wallace says, no, now wait. 
Mike, I wondered why you wanted to wait. Isn't a journalist an historian? No, because it's instant history. And you don't have the opportunity to know what might have gone on in other corners of that episode or other corners of the world while that episode was taking place. So what you're doing is getting a quick take, today's take or this month's take, but you're not putting it into the context of other events. But I think you think that I'm asking whether Mike Wallace is historian Mike Wallace, Professor Mike Wallace, whether I would endow you with uh, too much uh, power, maybe. Indeed, I'm asking whether you don't have the responsibilities of the historian. And I wonder what your answer is to that question. The responsibilities of the historian are to, it seems to me, are to sit back after the event, five years, 10 years, 20, 25 years, and taking into account various accounts of what have taken place. Then, it seems to me, you try to put it into a sensible historical context. When I do an interview with a Yasser Arafat, or an Anwar Sadat, or a Menachem Begin, or a Shah of Iran, or a Nixon, or Kennedy, or a Reagan, you're doing it really only in the context, in a discreet hour, two hours, at a discreet time. You may find out later on that, uh, that things were not what they were perceived to be at that moment, so that it doesn't make it history, it makes it commentary on something that's going on. Yes, but Mike, as I, as I read Close Encounters, and as I read your involvements in interviews with Nixon all the way back, and then Nixon a little more recently, uh, with the Reagans earlier on and the Reagans more recently, I know that you can, if you will, set your interviews into a certain perspective, and the question I'm asking is whether you don't have an obligation to do so. You look back at what has gone before in framing your questions. Of course you do. And you try to have the interviewee do the same thing. But I'm not sure that I fully understand, Dick, what you're, what you're after here. Well, I guess what I'm after is the, the question of what the responsibilities of the news person are and what his responsibility is to go as far behind the scenes as he possibly can look, today. Look. Uh, Yasser Arafat, second time I had interviewed him, his headquarters, Beirut, we had just gotten through with the chicken dinner. It was the day, I believe, in which the father of Wally Jamblat, Kamal Jamblat, I believe it was the first anniversary of his death, don't hold me to it, but I think that's what it was, and he, had, he uh, Arafat, like you today, had a cold and uh, was not feeling very good, but he came in and he was jovial and we had a chicken dinner and then we sat down to do the interview. And in the course of the interview, there had been a little piece about so big in the New York Times, which I had just stuck in my notes and wasn't sure that I was going to use it or not. But he brought up the subject of human rights. Human rights obviously struck a nerve with me as it does with people around the world, particularly as far as this item in the Times was concerned. It turned out that a PLO military training mission had gone to Uganda and was working with Idi Amin, under the direction of Idi Amin, PLO Idi Amin. And so I said to myself, wait a minute, human rights, Idi Amin, Yasser Arafat. Mr. Arafat, do you really, it's, it's, it's in Close Encounters, do you really, uh, man, you respect? Yes. Uh, but you talk about human rights. The butcher Amin is a man you respect. Now suddenly you can see this 
fellow out beyond the cliff and looking down, and you can see what's going on in his head right now, that he's, he doesn't want to be faced with that. In any case, we went through this for about a period of a minute or a minute and a half, and he finally said, yes, Idi Amin is a man with whom I can work. He is for me, therefore I am for him, and forget human rights. We get through doing the interview, the whole long interview, and Mahmoud Labadi, who was his press secretary, who's now gone over to the rebel side, that is the Syrian PLO side, said, well, of course you're not going to use that, Mike. I said, what? He said, you're not going to use that. I said, Mahmoud, what you've done really now probably is reconfirmed the fact that we have to use it by your asking that we don't. He said, but that's not fair. I said, why isn't it fair? Here's the chairman. He's a man in charge of himself. He told me what he felt. In any case, Barry Lando, the producer, and I went back to London over the weekend, put the piece together. It was on Sunday night, and obviously it was uh, on the air. Question. Journalism, history, power, uh, heat for heat's sake, heat for light's sake, understanding of Arafat, or all of the above. Or all of the above. I think probably a little of all of the above. Power, you mentioned power, you mentioned power. Well, what, a power in, in, in this respect, uh, Richard, the, uh, the PLO, and I must say I was, I was brought to, uh, to an understanding of the uh, Palestinian cause by a man whom I admired, indeed uh, loved, uh, the, the late Fayez Saeg. I grew up in a Jewish family which was traditionally Zionist. Franklin Roosevelt uh, uh, was the hero of the family, and Israel, which was not then in existence when I was a kid, uh, was something, that, the dream. And uh, the, palace, the, the story of the Palestinian was something that was totally unknown to me. And during the time of Nightbeat in 1956-57, I interviewed a man by the name of Fayez Saig, Palestinian, Christian, who, uh, with whom I became friends, and my late partner Ted Yates and I, and we spent a lot of time together, and little by little I began to understand the, uh, the Palestinian cause. Now, the PLO, it seems to me, uh, in some of its activities, surely, over the last 20 years, uh, has been less than admirable in the way that it has gone about its work. Terrorist. By the same token, there were, there were activities undertaken by the Jews in their fight for a homeland, in their fight for independence, which were, face it, terrorist. There was a letter in 1948 to the New York Times written by, as I remember it, Albert Einstein and Hannah Arendt and so forth, saying that if Menachem Begin ever came to power in Israel, uh, the, fascism would have taken a, a, a big step forward. I'm paraphrasing, but that letter was in the letters to the editor column of the New York Times. We had the power, I'm going on at great length here, we had the power, if you will, to expose the hypocrisy or the self-serving quality of Yasser Arafat in a very specific way when we pointed out his respect for friendship for Idi Amin. That's, you call that power, I, I call it simply, uh, the job of the journalist. Mike, have you ever not played something because someone didn't want you to, asked you not to? Uh, nothing comes to mind. Would no you? I can't see the circumstances under which I 
would. I myself, in the, in the case of Haiti, asked my colleague Morley Safer, please not to do a piece because my wife's family, Haitian, my, my wife's family, her cousin is married to a Haitian, and uh, her husband's father had been a political prisoner under Papadoc Duvalier for two years. I had done a piece in 1971. There had been no repercussions, but the family said, okay, you've done it, please lay off. Because you can, and there were three boys in the family, we're afraid. And so when, when it was suggested that maybe Morley was going to undertake that, and I shouldn't have done this, I walked in and said, I'd, I'd rather that you didn't do this. Inappropriate, but uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to make my wife content. Why shouldn't you have done it for that reason? Because, because if you presume to tell the audience that you let the chips fall where they may, and I don't know that I would necessarily do that for somebody else, why should I ask somebody to do it for me? You didn't ask him, as I understand, from the time of the story and from rereading the story. You didn't ask him to change anything. You didn't no, ask no. him to modify anything. No. You no, raised no. the question about doing the story, if That's I remember correct. correctly. That is correct. Well, now, what in the world was wrong with that very human action? Uh, I'm not suggesting that we uh, reporters should not be human. Then what are you suggesting? What I am suggesting is that probably, I, no, not probably, I shouldn't have asked. And he should have gone ahead and done the story. You mean Mike Wallace should have been above all that? Concerned it's not a question. I mean, you're, you're putting it in, in that context. It's not that I should have been above all that. It's, it's, it's that I particularly, who, uh, who am perceived as, uh, I am, I am perceive, perceived as uh, being, how can I say this adequately without sounding like a darn fool? As, as being straightforward and honorable and let the chips fall where they may, should not ask for special privileges. Okay, we won't okay. pursue that further. <clears throat> Mike, a question that I did want to ask you, now we're talking about uh, 60 minutes. Uh, I've wondered always, why does a guy or a gal who knows that there is such a huge possibility that he or she is going to be skewered not because you're mean of spirit, but yeah. because of their own background, what there is to report on. Why do they come? Well, it's apparent that we don't have subpoena power, so they have to right. agree. And those who don't agree, you know, back maybe five, six, seven, ten years ago, we used to stop them on the street after we had, uh, after we had sent them letters and made telephone calls and sent telegrams and tried every way to get to do the uh, piece, but if they, if they simply said no or didn't, didn't answer, then sometimes we used to stop them in the street. And all that did, really. Oh, on one or two occasions, two or three occasions, you really did get something unexpected and revealing. But by and large, what you get is embarrassment. And if it turns out to be embarrassment for embarrassment's sake, what's the point of doing it? Because you can stand in front of their place of business or place of employment and simply say, look, he didn't want to talk to us. But these are the questions that we intended to ask and let it go at that and say, he declined. Why do they do it? Because I think, I mean, we're 16 years old now, the broadcast. I think people know that they're going to be treated fairly. They're going to get an opportunity to get their message across to our audience. They are on their own home turf. They don't know what kind of material that we have. 
And then finally, and you know Safer said this once, and I think he may be right, there are some crooks who don't feel that they are properly confirmed as crooks until they've been on 60 Minutes. That's a uh, very funny, finally. Yeah. You know, when I watched uh, Big John Connolly on 60 Minutes. I remember that one very uh, well. And the next day, received a telephone call from a, someone we both know, a Texan, said, you know, what are those guys doing? And my only response was, how in the world did he get himself there? Why? They, as you suggest, didn't have subpoena power. That's the sort of thing I'm asking about. Well, that is perfectly understandable. We had done a profile of John Connolly before, some years before. He had been treated absolutely fairly. He was treated fairly in the interview that we did. He was treated fairly. There was not any question that he should not have been prepared to answer, except that this time he was running for the presidency. He wanted the exposure on 60 Minutes. There is a quid pro quo. We'll give you, if you, if we are fortunate, perhaps 50 million people to look at you. But by the same token, what we ask from you is that you, unrehearsed, answer our questions. And what we were able to do was to uh, suggest that perhaps he had a, an anti-labor background, perhaps that he wasn't all of that devoted to issues of civil rights, Perhaps he had uh, said some indiscreet things about uh, Mr. Kennedy and uh, Senator Kennedy and Chappaquiddick, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you put all of these things together in one piece, he was, he was not expecting this kind of, this kind of uh, approach. And um, he, was, he was uncomfortable that there was certainly nothing the least bit unfair in that. Mike, how many years before had you done the first show? About five, as I remember, if maybe six or seven. Did you do the same kinds of digging and the same kinds of asking then? No, as a matter of fact, because he wasn't running for president uh, uh, but, the first time around. But the questions would have been just as germane. Civil rights? Could have been just as germane, but when a man is running for president, you treat your interview in a totally different way, really, because you were trying to go to the nub of the character and how he might respond and to put him under some pressure so that an audience can, your proxy for an audience who wants to know some of these things. For instance, Ronald Reagan. His wife and I are dear friends from 40 years, her mother before in Chicago. And I had done a couple of interviews with Ronald Reagan before, and they were calculated to be interesting, useful, but he wasn't really a presidential candidate in either of those two. He was a major political figure. Now he was going to be nominated for the presidency of the United States. And a week before the presidential convention, the Republican convention in Detroit four years ago, I interviewed him and Mrs. Reagan and their daughter, Patty. And in the case of Ronald Reagan, there were certain questions, it seemed to me, that I had not asked before that needed to be asked of a president about the perception of him as a ne Neanderthal conservative who was, he was quoted during the Vietnam War as, uh, why don't we bomb the North and we could paint parking, you know, make it a parking lot, paint parking stripes on it and be home for Christmas. Tell me, Mr. Reagan, what, what, what was it that you had in mind back then? Or the fact of whether he had bl blacks, any blacks, on his staff, and it turned out that he really was incapable of answering whether he had, uh, either on top staff or below. Uh, what I was trying to do was to, was to run a gamut of a half a dozen or eight or ten questions, which would perhaps help him draw a profile of himself. Two questions, then. <clears throat> would your advice to presidential candidates be, stay away from 60 Minutes? It certainly didn't hurt, uh, didn't hurt Ronald Reagan. 
he was nominated. Some of his pals were mad at me for having done it for a period of a year or so. Was he happy with it? I don't think that he was particularly happy, but uh, I, have, I have seen him since, and he has been cordial since, and he and his wife uh, and I, I mean, and, I, and his wife and I remain very good friends, uh, uh, despite, look, they're realists. Politicians are realists, and they know that there are tough questions that are going to be asked. He, w he wanted the presidency at that time. Now he has the presidency. How many one-on-one -on -one interviews has he held within the last whatever time? Not uh, with Mike Wallace. With whom? Okay. Do you think he is a uh, Neanderthal man? No. No, I think he's a... I think he's a... Uh, I was about to say a simple man, but that's not... He's not, a, not by any means a simple man. He's a, he's a complex man. I think that he's, I think he's learned an immense amount in the presidency. I think he's a much more intelligent man than a good many people give him credit for. He is not the captive of those three by five cards that we hear so much about. A man does not get to be elected governor of California and re-elected governor of California and go after the presidency once mildly, second time hard, third time again and get elected and he's going to be apparently re-elected. A stupid man does not or, or, a, or a, an unqualified man does not get that. Then why do so many people talk about the three-by-five cards? Because that is a stereotype, and that is part of the frustration. They've been saying that about Ronald Reagan for the last 15, 20 years that I know of. I used to cover the governors. I covered the governors' conferences, and so I saw him at work. And I'll never forget the first news conference that he held when there was a governors' conference, as I remembered, I think, out in the Century Plaza Hotel. And the whole crowd, the Eastern crowd, came out. I remember Mark Childs and David Broder and so forth. And how surprised they were at the, at the man's remarkable capacity to take whatever question and answer it sensibly. Look, he's, his first wife, uh, the, the Jane Wyman, said that, that, that one of the reasons they got divorced was because he was always studying and thinking and reading the paper and wanted to talk ideas at the breakfast table. I mean, he's obviously a very thoughtful man, and he made his change from Democrat to Republican. Why is he... As an indica indication of how thoughtful he is? <laughs> no. No, okay. Thank you for being gentle with that. No, 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 I'm, and I'm, I've made no change from one to the other. I'm myself an independent. And I don't speak, I speak with some affection of his wife. I want to make this, per I want to make it's this perfectly, perfectly clear. clear I speak with some affection of his wife, my friend, and with respect for him, but uh, not necessarily because I'm going to vote for him. I'm not necessarily going to vote for Fritz Mondale either. But, you know, let's get back to the image of the stereotype of the three by five cards. Yeah. What does that tell us about the media generally? The Eastern establishment, Agnew's friends or enemies? Well, I'll, I, I plead guilty uh, to having been one of uh, Ted Agnew's friends. Um, yes, I note in the book you have a very interesting group of people you did or do admire. Well, uh, admiration, I don't think. I think it's probably too strong a word for my feeling for Sparrow Agnew. What happened was that he was, of all things, a kind of liberal Republican running against a, a conservative Democrat for the governorship of Maryland. There was a third man in the race by the name of Hyman Pressman, who was a, in between them. And, and, and George Mahoney, I believe, was the name of the Democratic candidate who, whose slogan was, uh, uh, to the tune of the Bells of St. Mary, your home is your castle, vote to protect it. 
Agnew was a kind of liberal Republican, and a lot of the people, from the um, civil servants from Washington, who were just across, who, who lived across the border in Maryland, voted for him. A lot of Democrats voted for him. And suddenly, and suddenly, this man who uh, was really not prepared to be the vice president of the United States, and conceivably the president, was propelled into a job for which, in my estimation, he was uh, totally unprepared. What I, what I liked about Ted Agnew was the fact that in those governor's conferences, he was a superb source because I had been with him at the beginning. We had gone to small rallies together, and I was the only guy there. And he and his wife, Judy, naturally like a reporter who spends some time and learns. I, at that time, I was covering the eastern states for CBS News uh, on election night on the governors. And so I got to know him, liked him, didn't know that he was, uh, how shall I say? I don't know how you should say. Subject to... Uh, Later disciplinary action. That's correct. Right, but Mike, you're you're you're. I, I, I want to come back to the question. Uh, it's and it's a pointed question. President Reagan, the three by five cards, the picture of him as a rather vague and unknowing mm -hmm. old man. You say that's not an accurate picture. Well, I don't. I don't listen. My, my boy Chris, my son Chris, covers him. I don't have that much first-hand knowledge of it what goes on inside the White okay, House. Okay, but you have enough of a negative thing about that picture of him to yes. have stated here that, that it really isn't true. Right. Question again. Yes. Do we have a uh, core of people in the electronic and print press who are given to skewering the president? Given to skewering the president? Yes. You given mean with the three-by-five card business? Yes. No, I don't. As a matter of fact, I think he's had a remarkably good press, all things considered. I, I get the feeling. I don't know when this is actually going to be played on the air. We're doing probably, this... In, probably after the election, Mike. Not till after the election. Yeah, so you can predict now. Uh, and we can hold you well, to Well, I it. think then, I would think then, that if this is going to be played after the election, that in the last six weeks of the election campaign, that there is going to be much more serious scrutiny of Ronald Reagan, a much, a, a much colder scrutiny of Ronald Reagan than there has been during the first three years, three and a half years, of his, what they call the Teflon pre presidency that nothing sticks to. I, I sense that, that, the, that the press is getting fed up with, okay. it's with the, a cocoon. It's the very the end of September now. Maybe we will be on the air with this before the election, but your perception is my perception, and it scares the hell out of me. What scares the hell out of me? The fact that at a certain point, the press begins to examine more carefully and perhaps more critically the President of the United States. My concern is not that they're doing it now, but that they haven't done it. What they do doesn't seem to make, or what we do doesn't seem to make a great deal of difference. Look. Were Jimmy Carter or Fritz Mondale in the presidency right now and 260 Marines were killed, if the building in East Beirut was blown, do you really believe that they would have gotten away with it the way Ronald Reagan has gotten away with it? It isn't because he hasn't been called to account by the press. There is something in the man's personality. There is something in the fact that the country feels itself prosperous. There is something in the Olympic rings. And, and I know this sounds asinine on its face, but, and there are probably a lot of Amer Americans who don't feel this way. Undoubtedly, a lot of Americans who don't feel this way, but there are a huge number of Americans who feel that they have it, we have it pretty good right now. And he is the steward to which they look, to whom they look. 
course, what I'm talking about is what the press does with him, not how they react to what the press does. Well, you said the press is changing now. I think that I sense that the press is going after him harder now, yes. That's an interesting phrase, and it's, I'm getting the cut sign with which you're very, very familiar. Ah. Maybe I can get you back here before or after the election. Thanks for joining me today, Mike Wallace. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for joining us today in memoriam. I hope you'll be with us again next time. And meanwhile, as another old friend used to say, good night and good luck. For other past programs, do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind.